never seen you looking so bad, my funky one. You tell me that your super fine mind has come undone. Any major dude with half a heart surely will tell you, my friend. Any minor world that breaks apart falls together again. When the demon is at your door, in the morning it won't be there no more. Any major dude will tell you. Any major dude will tell you. Okay, everybody, welcome back to Rapton Podcast. This is episode 17 of Rapton Podcast, where we're going to talk about part 17 of Twin Peaks The Return, uh, the first of what was broadcast as a two-part season finale of The Return. Uh, At the beginning of this episode, I just want to say, if you are one of the few souls on this earth that has watched part 17 but not part 18, please turn off the podcast Go watch part 18 and then come back because even though we are going to focus in this episode of the podcast on part 17 for reasons that will probably become obvious, it'll be very difficult for us to discuss everything in 17 without talking about stuff that at least relates to things that happened in 18. Although JR, there are some people who say you should never watch episode 18. (laughs) There are are some people. Probably. 
<laughs> on this panel, I, probably too. I, I, yeah. At so, this point, but. I should give a shout out to my father, who in fact watched episode seventeen and then waited, did not watch episode eighteen because he said he wanted to listen to my podcast first. Good for which, him, which, oh, wow. which is awesome. Him. But wow. But uh, shout, but, shout uh, out, yeah, Dad. Dad, I think you'll you'll be better off uh, watching eighteen because we're going to end up talking about eighteen during this episode. So anyway. So, uh, this is JR. Uh, I, I'm joined this week by Kyle. How are you doing, Kyle? Uh, I'm, I'm well. Thank you, JR. And uh, Kyle uh, is here, and so is Ken. How are you doing, Ken? Doing pretty well, JR. You know, I'm staying in this hotel. It's uh, got, it got clean rooms at a fair price, and I'm enjoying my stay a lot. I also learned that the key to my room door opens up the boiler room. So uh, I'm excited to see what I can find exploring down there. Great. And uh, Jeff, you're with us again for the penultimate uh, part of Twin Peaks of Return. How are you doing, Jeff? I've kind of felt all over the place uh, in the four days since this two-parter aired. I Sometimes I feel like Bobby Briggs, just kind of wandering in at the tail end of things, going, hey, what's going on here? Other times I feel like Hawk kind of watching impassively, and other times I feel just like Jerry Horn uh, naked coming out of the woods uh, yelling about something I saw in my bad binoculars. So I've... I've been I've been I've been around the world trying to sort my feelings out about this finale. Yeah. So uh, what we're going to try to do for for part seventeen is do a kind of fairly straightforward recap of the stuff that happened without going into a lot of deep discussion for now uh, about our theories and thoughts about the larger meaning of these episodes and of the entire return. But of course, th- that stuff is going to come up and and and. We're going to talk about it as we need to. So part 17 begins with the Rancho Rosa logo, uh, where we have a white ring uh, that fills out into a uh, a white circle, but it pre- preceded by a black and white vortex that had framed the logo. We, we, we've been paying attention to the Rancho Rosa logos for a while. You know, At some point, we'll have to publish our unified field theory of how the logo relates to each part of the return. And and how it's, in fact, unnecessary to watch the episodes. If you watch the Rancho Rosa logo sequence, you will understand everything that happens for that particular part of the series. Uh, but we're actually if you if you watch them backwards, there's a secret. Yes. Right. Right. That Paul is dead. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, so this begins in Buckhorn, as many episodes have, uh, with a Blue Rose sort of conversation. Um, we'll recall that. The Tulpa Diane had just been shot by Albert and Tammy and flew out uh, from the hotel in Buckhorn into the Red Room, uh, where it, you know, hissed and dissolved away the way that Tulpas do. And now Albert has poured some red wine for for Gordon uh, and for Tammy. Uh, You know, it's weird. I, I don't think that FBI agents are supposed to drink while they're on duty. Maybe there's an exception for when you've just shot a Tulpa. (laughs) <laughs> but we, we've seen them drinking red wine a lot, but it's usually in the evening. Uh, this appears to be, you know, midday, uh, as far as we can tell. But anyway, they're Gordon said, I think Albert asked Cole if he's okay. And, and, and Gordon says, I couldn't do it, Albert. Albert says, You've gone soft in your old age. Gordon says, Not where it counts, buddy. <laughs> Uh, confirming a lot of the things that we've been uh, observing about Gordon Cole uh, this season. Uh, I think one of our listeners um, 
uh, on, on Facebook noted that Tammy's response to this should have been an eye roll, but instead it was a kind of blush and smirk and smile in response to Gordon. I think she proposes a toast to the bureau. Was it Tammy or Gordon who toasts the bureau? I think, I think, I Gordon think that's did. right. I think that's right. So there's a pause and now Gordon says, now listen to me. So Gordon uh, provides another sort of blue rose, rose explication session. Uh, he lets Albert in that that he's been keeping a secret from him for 25 years ago. Essentially, the secret is that for 25 years uh, ago, Gordon uh, was told by Major Briggs that he had identified an entity of extreme negative force that had been called in olden times Jow Day, uh, and now it's become the name Judy, uh, and that Briggs, Cole, and Cooper had a plan to lead us to Judy, but then something happened to Briggs, and then something happened to to Cooper, and then something happened to Philip Jeffries, who Gordon notes doesn't really exist anymore, at least in the normal sense. <clears throat> who Philip Jeffries, who had been onto the entity, he also disappeared. Coop had warned Cole that if he disappeared, like the others had, Cole should do everything to find him, that he was trying to kill two birds with one stone. So Cole also mentioned that bad Coop, Mr. C, was looking for Major Briggs's coordinates, which he knew from the FBI informant Ray Monroe. Uh, Cole apologizes that he couldn't tell Albert about the plan. Albert understands, but he's still sorry. And, you know, Cole isn't sure that everything is going right because they haven't heard from Cooper. And, of course, at this point, the phone rings. You know, regarding this, before we go on to the the call that he gets, the the business of Ray being an FBI informant is totally bizarre. Uh, I mean, I have to hope that Ray was hired as an informant after they came to the uh, Yankton prison because – they're just doing a really crappy job if Ray was a was an FBI informant prior to that point in time, because how could Mr. C not have been on their radar, right? Do you all agree that that Ray must have been hired, you know, after Mr. C was locked up? Yeah, one would hope. I mean, they they didn't didn't know who Cooper was for sure until they went there with Diane. So it makes sense that they would have hired him then. Although when that would have taken place, I'm not really sure. Ray was like one of the only things I didn't think about. Yeah. <laughs> in this yeah. I think I thought about everything else at much greater and extreme length. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. And then who, who hired Ray to kill Mr. C? Whoever was impersonating Jeffries. Jeffries. Who I, I, or I don't think it was Jeffries. I think it was someone impersonating Jeffries, but I, yeah. Well, yeah. The know. person that was uh, the, perhaps the person that Mr. C called on his device in the hotel room. Yeah, he wanted to know if he had, if he had seen Briggs or block of wood Jeffries, but not kettle Jeffries. Yeah, good, good, could be good oh, possibility shit. there. Yeah. So I have a quick point to make on this uh, scene before we move on, and I'm interested in uh, Kyle's question about how many things are the same thing. So hopefully he'll he'll uh, uh, pose that one as well. But um, it, it's interesting the way that Cole refers to Jeffries, right? Philip Jeffries, who doesn't really exist anymore, at least not in the normal sense. It sounds seems to me like a big wink to the viewing audience, and it does feel a little bit like as we approach the end that the show has gone very meta. Like there's going to be three or four other points between now and the end of the season where uh, I, I thought of things as almost 
breaking the fourth wall like it like they were winking at the way that we're perceiving this show and thinking about how odd the kettle jeffries is for example it's a little like i just watched the saturday night live sketch about twin peaks from 1990 when kyle mclaughlin hosted and the the show was at the apex of its popularity and they're doing this bit where he's had a dream and people are running into his room at the great northern to talk to him about it and uh, Coop says, well, we can't leave yet. The mystery isn't solved, even though the Leo Johnson has confessed to killing Laura Palmer. He says, we can't leave yet because I haven't talked to the log lady. And Kevin Nealon as Sheriff Truman says, well, you're not going to talk to the late log lady. And Comic Laughlin Cooper says, why not? And Truman says, because we only have two We're out women. Of women. On, yeah. Yeah. We only have right. two women on Saturday Night We've already used them because they've had Nadine and Audrey already come into the room. They have no more female cast members to play the log lady. Right. It's, it's a little bit like that where Lynch is just kind of looking at the viewer and going, he is, it's kind of like this. What a great way to describe it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, I I thought, I mean, it seemed like we were having this brisk pace at the beginning of the scene, and and that seemed like it was setting up, you know, the all-encompassing finale that I thought we were going to have. Um, In in retrospect, on a second viewing, I don't think it holds up well. JR, you've already raised uh, one issue, but, you know, we've got this two birds with one stone thing that sounded like a cryptic remark by the fireman, and now we find out it's a cryptic remark by Cooper. Which two birds is Dale trying to kill and with what stone? I mean, we thought when we saw Richard Horn dying on top of a rock that that was Richard being killed by a stone and that somebody named Linda was going to show up and die on that same rock. That didn't happen, of course. You know, we've got this whole thing about Jeffrey, Jeffrey's, excuse me, disappearing while he's looking for this entity they're all seeking. But then when he shows up again, the one thing he refuses to talk about is the one thing they're implementing a plan to go and find. What is their plan? And what does Gordon mean when he says he's not sure whether it's unfolding properly? Every other human being involved in this plan has been missing since at least 1989. And Cooper told him to go looking for him, which shouldn't be a thing you need to tell your boss if you're in the FBI. If I disappear when I'm doing my job, send somebody to search for me. I would think that there's a protocol for that already built into the system. But why hasn't Gordon been doing that? Why hasn't Gordon been looking for him for 25 years? Why should he expect to hear from Cooper by a particular time when he hasn't heard from him in a quarter of a century? So it's, it's a nice scene while it's happening. Going back and watching it, it doesn't hold up well at all. Yeah, that's great. And one of my chief frustrations about these scenes, the reason why I keep referring to the hotel as like hotel stasis or hotel where the FBI has spent this whole season is because the FBI has done nothing. They have holed up in this hotel and they have drank for the entirety of this season and put a bunch of machines up using the whole power grid of South Dakota to to power them. So it's it's very frustrating. And I, I share your frustration with that and with the way that Coop now brings in this uh, this explication of a supposed plan that couldn't actually be in motion. I did have an interpretation, though, of Two Birds with One Stone. I thought that was Coop's summary of what he was doing 25 years ago, where the two birds were solving Laura's murder and continuing the quest to find Judy, Chow Day. That Jeffries had disappeared trying to find this entity, and Cooper's supernatural uh, questing, his discovery of Bob and whatnot, uh, led him to a place where he thought he could actually get to the bottom of this mystery about the entity and that sounds really good 
that sounds good as a retcon, but if that's the case, then why didn't Gordon do something to protect Cooper when he was suspended from the FBI and had to be deputized and went around wearing flannel for three or four episodes because the guy that Peggy Lipton used to be on the mod squad with came and, and kicked him off the FBI for a while? I mean, it, it sounds good, and in retrospect, that makes sense, but there's stuff that took place in the first two seasons of Twin Peaks that doesn't hold up. Of course, assuming that the first two seasons of Twin Peaks, in fact, happened. Right. You're also referring to a section of season two that I disavow anyway. So I don't, I don't think any of well, that Well, and David Lynch anyway. clearly agrees with you. Right, right. Right. And, and let's pour one out for old uh, uh, Agent Chester Desmond, who also disappeared. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not referenced nearly enough, yeah. uh, if at all, uh, in, in, in the series. And, you know, um, I also, like, where's, where's the Air Force, Right. right. They 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 were on to this investigation. They're the ones that brought uh, Gordon on, but they've you know apparently have had nothing to do with anything. Maybe they're writing this the the final dossier. I, I don't know. They're in their um, own hotel, and, smoking and drinking. And, hold up, right. hold up at a hotel and, in Fort Collins. Right. Jow Day, Jow Dai, Jow Day. We should talk about uh, your people on the internet have talked about uh, in in Chinese, and I'm sure that I'm not pronouncing this correctly. Jiao uh, Dai can mean to explain or to make clear or account for or to tell or perhaps adhesive tape. Uh, D-E instead of D-A-I, uh, I believe means scream. So there's some, I guess, metonymy there uh, for, for Judy, perhaps. Um, the, the, the subtitle said J-O-W-D-A-Y, which doesn't seem to mean anything. Um you know, people on the internet are saying because you know David Lynch doesn't believe in a final meaning to any of his work that an explanation equals the ultimate evil and enemy in the piece, which is a the extreme negative yeah, force. What, what, yeah. One way to look at it, Kyle. You had you want let let's do a thumbs up, thumbs down. All of us can weigh in on various things that at this point in the episode we thought could be Judy. Yeah, I, and and I was asking this, posing this as a question. This is not me advocating. I genuinely don't know. And so I, I came up with a list of a dozen things and just wanted to ask, how many of these are, in fact, the same thing as one another? Um, and, and I'll just run through them, and then we can do whatever we want to. Judy, the frog bug, the frog bug girl, the mutant fish puke girl, the thing inside Sarah Palmer, the symbol on Doppel Cooper's playing card and Hawk's map, Mother from the Space Box, The Experiment, The Experiment Model, Linda, The Thing the Log Lady Warned Hawk Was Under the Moon, and Whatever Has Audrey, Wherever Audrey Is. Because you could convince me that all 12 of those are the same thing. Okay, so, yeah. Are we voting? Do you want us to go one at a time? Okay. So, uh, how many of these things are Judy? Uh, Judy is Judy. The frog bug, I think, is either Judy or an offshoot of Judy at the sort of Bob level. If Judy is the ultimate evil, if Judy is the final boss, then uh, the big, big bad, then the frog bug is something like Bob on the way there. A very, very bad, nasty thing, but not Judy itself. Uh, The frog bug girl is just a poor human. The mutant fish puke girl is probably irrelevant to everything for all time. Uh, the thing inside Sarah Palmer, I think, is an offshoot of Bob, a Bob-like spirit, though it did seem from the Sarah Palmer we get later in episode 18 that it reacted at a very visceral level to Cooper messing around with the time stream or whatever he was doing. The symbol on the playing card in Hawk's map is... Uh, a representation of evil, which uh, could refer to Judy or to Judy's minions. Mother from the space 
box. The mother is, do we think mother is the same thing as the experiment or the experiment model? Do we think those three are all the same thing? I just, I I'm think of the, the question. I don't yeah, know. Right. Well, I think of the milky thing in episode eight. The only episode I care about is episode eight forever, but the <laughs> milky thing in episode eight, which we call experiment which is giving off the sort of bo- giving birth to the bob form that to me is judy and so whatever comes out of that thing and makes landfall in our dimension through the space box could be a bob level offshoot of judy but that thing to me is judy so uh the frog bug the thing in the space box the the mother the thing inside sarah palmer all emanations from judy which is the experiment from episode eight and possibly represented by the symbol and the thing log lady will warn hawk about uh, i don't think audrey is in the clutches of anything particularly supernatural i just think she's still in a coma okay i'm gonna say i think they all are judy except for the mutant fish puke girl linda and I would agree with you about whatever has Audrey, wherever Audrey is. And I think the frog bug girl, she could be infected by Judy. She could not. I think it's it's unknown. I have this theory about the frog bug girl being the little girl who lived down the lane, huh? but I'll save that for 18. Mm. So, but yeah, I would say the rest of them, I would pretty much say are Judy, except the mutant fish puke girl who just ate a bad sparkle burger that came from someone's <laughs> armpit. And Linda is Linda. Uh, Linda is not Judy. Yeah, I actually uh, fully concur with Jeff's answer, so that'll save us some time. Oh, I skipped Linda. Which what thing is Linda? Well, uh, evidently there, there Linda, is, Linda who is Linda. One of the Dianes thinks she is when she leaves Cooper in a motel that's no longer the same motel. Oh, right, that's the Richard and Linda. Remember Richard yes. and Linda, right? Yes. I just assumed all of that. And there's also a Linda. Right. I just assumed all that was taking place on the uh, Nixon historical library grounds uh, for Kyle's sake. Um, No, I would have been a better ending. I'm just going to (laughs) say. Yes. Well, I clearly your fan fiction will end there and that that will be a big hit. Um, No, I I don't think Linda is Judy. Yeah. Different, different level on the order of things. Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, kind of in defense of all these scenes at the Mayfair, I actually found them really funny and loved how many of these episodes late in the season just open with this bizarre, straightforwardly delivered monologue or data dump about totally bizarre things from some member of the Blue Rose Task Force in this suite in Buckhorn in the Mayfair Hotel that they've just are occupying indefinitely. Um, and then, you know, you're right. They don't do anything. And I, I actually found this after a while, the stasis of this both frustrating, but also in the same way that I started to find some of the Audrey and Charlie scenes kind of very darkly humorous after a while. Yeah. And it's a little sort of funny, you know? So yeah, yeah this go ahead. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, it's fine. Yeah. 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 No, I just, I think one of the things, you know, as with, I, we, I talked about, you know, with the Wally Brando scene early on, some of these scenes just, I'll find something excruciating and frustrating at first. And then the longer it goes on, the funnier I find. Yeah. And it's pretty hypocritical of me to criticize the stasis after my whole speech about DJ screw and slowing things down and travel sequences and stalker, right? Like the, right. We're supposed to really be enjoying the drone and the, and the, um, uh, plotting pace of things, the uh, intentional slow pace at which these things are moving. And obviously, the long sequences of driving go all the way back to Lost Highway, which goes all the way back to Lynch said his fascination with La Strada, which had scenes of driving that really, really resonated with him. And the idea of 
detectives who don't do anything but manage to get to the bottom of a mystery anyway has its roots in classic film like uh sunset boulevard and all the various other things lynch has been nodding to from his film education through this if you watch like kiss me deadly or these various films with mike hammer at the center i love the mike hammer movies because hammer doesn't do anything (laughs) he has no action takes no agency in moving the plot forward and still manages to stumble into the solution or the uh at the very least the end of a mystery so maybe maybe that's what's at foot here uh what's at work here yeah and there and there there seems to be some sort of like lynch you know his dream detective i guess of cooper seems like he's both active but then he also is kind of in touch with some sort of passive or intuitive you know kind of side of things and, and balances the you know the two of them in some way so yeah i don't know um but i i do agree with you kyle that if this is like kind of an astounding as i said kind of data dump to occur this late in the season and it does kind of recalibrate our sense of the question of who the bad guy is or the bad you know uh, at this point uh and uh it does as you said sort of point the way to this quick tidy resolution the sort that a lot of us were kind of predicting anticipating for the finale but it also opens up just as many questions and for me it was kind of this early clue that things are going to take a turn somewhere up ahead. It did so more drastically than I anticipated. But for me, it was this clue that, you know, everything wasn't going to proceed uh, quite as we predicted. So, yeah, maybe we should move on. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Uh, guys, we are never going to finish this podcast. No, we've, no. We, we've been we've been pushed into a pocket universe where we're literally just going to have to keep for every five minutes, it's going to take 25 minutes of podcast material. Then it's going to be for every five minutes, it can take 50 minutes. It's going to be like uh, exponentially relational in terms of how long the podcast is to the amount of uh, footage that we're covering in the series. So, um, yeah, we're, we're stuck. We are the we're podcasters who podcast and live inside the podcast. That's right. That's right. I just, I just have one question. Uh, uh, what, what year is it? <laughs> yeah. Right. So there's a phone call <laughs> to to uh, Cole in in the in the hotel in Buckhorn. It's Agent Headley. The FBI has found Dougie Jones, uh, but they don't know where he is. Uh, Albert says, "Is my watch stopped, or is this one of the Marx brothers?" Headley explains that they're going to ha- give him the whole story. But Bushnell Mullins walks in, and he's, "Is that Gordon Cole? I have a message for him." And he reads, uh, "Gordon Cole wants to hear the message from Bushnell." Bushnell reads the message. From Coop, I am headed for Sheriff Truman's. It is two fifty three in Las Vegas, uh, and that adds up to ten. The number of completion. So two five three does in fact add up to ten. I'll leave the the numerological analysis to Jeff uh, on that point. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, this is you know the simplest kind of form of numerology in which you just add numbers together, and then you can do this with birth dates, phone numbers. You know, you can do it with the letters of your name. You, there's a certain number that's assigned to each letter in the alphabet. Uh, but, you know, there's there are certain numbers that often you will – sometimes you'll take the 10 and reduce it further to like a 1. There's sort of master numbers like 11 and 22. But 10 is – has often been viewed as kind of a sacred special number. In many cultures, think about how much of our sort of mathematical system is arranged around 10s and, you know, 10 times 10 and so forth. Uh, but as Cooper says here, 10 in – kind of numerology, a number of completion, absolute perfection, integrity, fullness, this unity kind of balance of being uh, and non-being. So, yeah. And then uh, only other thing I was going to say, uh, you know, that the 430, which seems to be the other important number that 
comes back in this episode that we also knew from early on in the season that adds up to seven. And we've, you know, seen lucky seven insurance hotel room. Number seven will come up in episode 18. So, uh, that's, that's about all. Yeah. Very impressive, Jeff, that you were able to explain how 10 represents perfection and not reference a Blake Edwards movie. I knew you would be there, Kyle. <laughs> Mullins and Dougie bond over the, or not uh, Mullins and, and Cole bond over the fact that they're uh, boss of Dougie and Coop, respectively. Uh, and that, that's basically the end of the call. Cole hangs up the phone and he says, Dougie is Cooper. How the hell is this? And uh, Tammy uh, uses FBI Google or whatever to to find out that Dougie has had a history of attempts in his life. And then I think Albert notes that he's been seen with organized crime figures. Uh, and Gordon says, a blue rose case, most definitely. Pack it up. I know where he's going. And, and, uh, and again, I'll just. How you found to be yeah. quite insightful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, he knows where he's going. Yeah. Mullins just read you a note that Cooper wrote that said he was heading to Sheriff Truman's. Your FBI informant has provided you with the coordinates that lead to the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station. You just heard the Diane Tulpa use the phrase Sheriff Station three times in four sentences. And it's like, this is the really stupid version of the scene with Doppel Cooper and Richard Horn. It's like he's got three sets of coordinates, they all point to the same place they all come from reliable people who work for the fbi of course he knows where it is right so we uh unless he unless he's trying to fool judy who's listening to <laughs> right, right 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 who's swallowed okay, so this see, world that, and, and i left somebody it. off yeah. the list then tammy is tammy preston judy do you rule that out no i mean n- not convincingly judy is the is the mayfair hotel <laughs> I think Judy Judy is associated with insects and amphibians, not reptiles. <laughs> now I'm liking the Mayfair so, Hotel theory. Diane is the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station. Judy is the Mayfair Hotel. I, that that actually makes more sense to me than anything in Part 18. Yeah, and Tammy is the rocks on which the show runs aground. She is the stone who kills the two birds. Yeah, there you go. The show shifts to the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station where Chad is, you know, he keeps trying to get uh, the the drunk uh, man with the sores on his mouth and face and who's also a mimic to fall asleep, I guess because he's worried that the mimic is going to somehow alert the police to the fact that he's getting a skeleton key out of the heel of his right. boot. Uh, like Chad, like because the drunk is like some sort of informal alarm system for the sheriff station or something. Uh, but anyway, he 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 basically uh, dev- apparently he 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 manages to get the skeleton key out, unlock his cell, uh, and you know. And then in the meantime, uh, we see Bad Coop, uh, Mister C, driving at night. Jeff, I think you noted know, this is in fact the last time we're going to see Mister C driving at night. But not the last time we're going to see but. someone driving at night uh, in Twin Peaks. Very, um, yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, back to the sheriff station. Uh, Nido is kind of wheezing and humming in her sleep. Uh, James and Freddie wonder what Nido is. Uh, the drunk continues to imitate her noises. And I'm calling him the drunk not because it's Im- terribly obvious that he's drunk as opposed to like injured and impaired, but that's how he's credited. Uh, in, in, in the credits for the show is, I think, Drunk Man. Anyway, Nido sits up and she's chirping louder. Kyle, you noted that James is so uncool that not even the bleeding parrot boy will repeat what he says. Yeah, that he's the one person that the, the drunk doesn't repeat. Right. Uh, and then 
we we shift to the to the Great Northern, uh, where Ben Horn, who who basically just picks up the phone and answers it for most of his appearances in the show, picks up the phone to find out that uh, his brother Jerry has been picked up outside Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, claiming that his binoculars killed someone and that he needs to send clothes when he sends for him because uh, Jerry Horn is naked. This puts him on a list. I think, Jeff, you noted that uh, he's that Jerry Horn is a counterpart to Nido and Ruth Davenport and Dorothy Valens and many other people who Laura Palmer herself have, have showed up nude in the wild uh, in, in Lynch's work generally and in Twin Peaks specifically. Yeah, but we don't really see many male nudes, but uh, Jerry Horn is one of them. And this was also one of those moments throughout 17 and 18. You know, I do think there is this kind of interesting sort of symmetry and architecture to the season. And um, I talked about it, I think, last episode, or the one before, where, you know, it seems like two and a half episodes into the season, Cooper transformed into Dougie. Two and a half episodes before the end of the season, he woke up. And this was one of those moments where, you know, I think the first in episode one, I think the first scene we get of like checking back in with someone in Twin Peaks is of Jerry Horn and Ben Horn at the Great Northern. And so this was just one of those first instances I kind of picked up on uh, us returning, you know, to things from the first few episodes. Yeah. All right. So Mr. C shows up nearby where the sheriff's department had parked when they visited Jackrabbit's palace. And Mr. C is approaching that same spot. Uh, where the sycamore tree that is above the uh, reflective pool of molten golden stuff where we saw a portal open up to the White Lodge for Andy the last time we were here. We get the same uh, sort of wormhole appear in the sky and Mr. C flickers away and all of a sudden he's gone. And, the you know, the mystery of the coordinates ends here. I mean, basically all the coordinates – were traps designed to destroy or kill uh, Mr. C. And if, if these were Diane coordinates, you know, I'm not sure if her tulpa was like defying orders to send him here or if these were, were her tulpa. Anyway, but just basically all the coordinates seem like they were designed to to trap, uh, destroy, kill uh, Mr. C. And I was kind of surprised he fell for this ruse. It seems, you know, like the more we get into this, like both Bob and Doppel Cooper really, once you, I don't know, the fireman's, seems like he has a good plan to, to deal with it. So, so you yeah. think, Jeff, that when Diane did the text in response to the smiley face all, and she said, I hope this works, you think those were these coordinates? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I almost feel like she might have been, at that point, starting to defy her conditioning or her programming right. at that point. Right. So Okay. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, that. what were the true coordinates? What were the coordinates that Mr. C was actually seeking? Uh, were they coordinates for the Palmer house? Because that's where he ultimately seems to wanted to be. If we think that's where Judy is. Yeah. Or maybe he thought he was, you know, going to seek entrance into the white lodge, but then just was trapped there, you know, and it wasn't what he thought it was going to be. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting because why would he think Judy's in, in, in the white lodge? Or I don't know. It's hard because, you know, the, the fireman does say it's in our house now. Maybe Judy, maybe he got confused. He thought that he could get into the white lodge when Judy was there. Uh, but regardless, that's not what happens. Uh, he is popped into what appears to be what we're calling the White Lodge, uh, where um, he is uh, immediately uh, imprisoned in a kind of phantom zone type situation, which is great, where there's a, a floating judgy face of Major Briggs 
a huge face floating on the right side of the screen. And it's, it's in the kind of old timey movie theater where we saw the fireman and Senorita Dido watch the events of what we would call Judy or the experiments appearance after the Trinity experiment. Uh, And we have the same golden Rube Goldberg, you know, horn like device that had deposited Laura in the world. Now we see uh, Coop's, had Mr. C's head floating encased in like a kind of cage imprisoned almost with, and we hear a kind of lockup sound as that happens that there's a shot of a room that just has like a bank of these same kind of dome bell like devices that where Philip Jeffries is contained and we're on the top of the, the space box. Uh, we're in the room where the fireman pulled the, the latch of some kind of release valve or something after uh, the Trinity experiment. And in this very room where the, the this trial or imprisonment of Mr. C is taking place, there's a very large elongated bell. I don't know if you guys saw that because it's kind of dark uh, in the middle of the room. Yeah. And in the background, the, the fireman's just kind of levitating in yeah, front of the big Yeah, and, and, and I, it, it looks like he's almost levitating on his back, uh, like he was doing when he kind of, the, the stardust came out of his head to form Laura uh, back in episode eight. And here, though, he's looking at a screen. The first screen he, scre- he sees is a picture of the Palmer house, which he then swipes away. Ken, you wanted to shout out uh, the Apple Corporation for <laughs> their... <laughs> franchising of the ios device to the white law ios operating system to the white lodge very good product placement then we see some static or he's he's on some sort of metaphysical tinder right. or something that's how we met right. yeah, swipe data. left so, swipe right yeah. <laughs> that's right <laughs> sheriff station palmer's house sheriff station is diane so it's and, and judy is the palmer house uh the fire the fireman prefers diane to judy Right, he he swipes away uh, Judy, i.e. the Palmer House, and instead sets on the sheriff station, which is Diane. That's great. I think we that we've unlocked the Tinder that is an theory of Twin satisfying Peaks. explanation to me. Like, the fireman and Tammy Preston is is the Mayfair Hotel. Yeah. So we've established every every woman is a building. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's better than a refrigerator. Uh, it's a, I think there's a Talking Head song about that. But yeah, the the fireman's just looking for a nice lady or or gentleman to bring back to the white lodge to watch movies on his black and white touchscreen with it's nice it's romantic okay so so if if all of the female characters are in fact buildings and if these buildings do in fact have refrigerators in them we have reversed the women in refrigerators problem and now have refrigerators in women (laughs) Uh, david lynch foils his critics once again yeah yeah <laughs> yeah change your heart and, and or die everybody uh so ultimate i was just making a joke about swiping right this went totally somewhere but- <laughs> yeah well, but it makes sense right which, i mean which we, is we, true we, to the spirit of the finale <laughs> yes absolutely well, right right i mean we we know that that house is a thing and diane's the one that said she was the sheriff's station uh, although I, the four of us are the only people on earth who thinks that's the case <laughs> People have too uh, much faith have in the subtitles. Def- we have the defi- defining yeah, yeah. sonic evidence. No. Blinky uh, from On the Air is doing the subtitles for Twin Peaks The Return. This, this the, the, the subtitles are horrible. I mean, can you imagine the person who is assigned <laughs> yeah. the job? This is amazing. Of, like, doing <laughs> yeah. This. 
Yeah. Doing the subtitles for like Stevens yeah. like speech. Oh god. Yeah, the, you have to oh, wonder yeah. are those That's one of the most incomprehensible things I've are, ever seen. Are, the fact that the subtitles the general person, principle do those people get do they get scripts? Yeah, that's what I assumed. I assumed subtitles were taken from the scripts. Oftentimes you can watch something with the subtitles. I mean, you watch a lot more stuff with subtitles on than I do, JR, but you can see where it seems like the actor has chosen a slightly different reading or take than was in the original script. Like there'll be words that are synonyms, not homophones, but synonyms for the words that the actor chooses to use. So I assume they get like shooting scripts. And they absolutely might have written, I'm in the sheriff station, and Laura Dern might have made the acting choice to go with I am the sheriff station, you know? But that doesn't mean that the or, subtitles or to, are right. Or to just or to just severely allied I'm and right. in. Yes. You know, that that it may have been that, that was her her the way she decided a kind of sort of out of breath way to say it. That 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 could be the yeah. case. I guess I have a hard time believing, though, as tight as security was and with Kyle MacLachlan supposedly being the only actor who was given a full script of everything. And even he apparently didn't know how it ended until he was sitting in front of his TV Sunday night. I find it hard to believe that some guy at Comcast has been handed this this, or Showtime or wherever, whoever they do this stuff. This guy's been handed the whole thing and saying, "Okay, type this up. I, I'm I'm questioning no, that. But Showtime's got the whole thing, right? They have to have it in order to prep it to to go on air, and they just make people sign super ironclad NDAs. Yeah, I mean, we we could speculate about this for another twenty minutes. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably what our what our listeners would all love to hear about. But that, we got uh, a lot of I'm, listener I'm, feedback on the subtitle thing. They probably do want to hear us talk about this. But you're right; we're never true. going to be done with this. We're ne- we are never yes, going to. I'm sorry. This. Okay. All right. Right, so so we hear sheriff station. We well no, we hear we hear a lot. We we haven't we're not even done because Mr. C has to his face has to float out of his little phantom zone prison from Superman two up into the golden horn device, uh, which. But I thought before that happened, it's like he changed it. He did. Something. He did. I wasn't sure if that he was did. like his head like a, or if it was. I thought yeah, it was like a bundle or, or, or it looked like or something. I wasn't it looked sure. like a like a sponge with a bunch of tiny tines coming out of it. That's what I thought it looked like. It looks like the spiky was, haired really logo for that new Netflix show, Death Note or whatever. Spiky haired guy. That's definitely what it was. It's a very contemporary <laughs> reference, Ken. Listen, I'm down with the youth, <laughs> <laughs> and their purple drink. That's right. All right. So anyway, he, he's basically what happened is the fireman has put has taken Mr. C, Bad Coop, from Jackrabbit's Palace in the woods and deposited him right outside of the sheriff's station. And this results in a uh, awkward encounter between Mr. C and Andy. Uh, and also, oh, 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 I wanted to note that Mr. C's luxurious mullet is bound in the back by a, a kind of hair tie that has looks like it has the same symbol on it as uh, Dale Cooper's pin oh. on his suit. I don't know if any of you guys picked that up. The ah, Battlestar Galactica uh, and, uh, Eagle Phoenix thing. Oh, I don't know, Ken. I'm I'm really interested in what that symbol is because it looks different in this these two episodes than it did previously, where it shows up. Oh, e- even uh, on the pin, sh- it looks different it, in these episodes. Yeah, oh. it, it it does look a little bit different. It looks like there's a, and in fact, there's a scene later on when when Mister when Coop is in the red room and he confronts Leland, and it looks like it, it and it's almost the same as it happened the first time. Uh, it looks like they used the footage when he's face to face with Leland from from back in episode one or two, whenever that was, but they used different footage for the part of him walking up to it. And it looks like it's a different pin, 
but we can, we can get to that later. We, we need to, uh, I need to do a more comprehensive you know, pin watch outline, but we do know that it's important, right? Because he had the pin on uh, in the in the space box, but he lost the pin when he went through the electrical outlet to become Dougie. Yeah. Okay. And and Jr. Can you get your tulpa to see if there's a connection between the Rancho Rosa logo of a particular episode and the FBI pin from that particular episode? Because that could be the key to the whole thing. It could be. We need interns is what we need. So I'm looking at the pin in the hair of Bad Coop when he rematerializes in the sheriff's station. There's a long zoom into the hair and the pin, but it looks just like a jewel. It looks like a jeweled brooch. Like there's three concentric circles of gold and a diamond or something. It doesn't doesn't look like it's the shape of anything other than jewelry, but... See, the the, the shape that I was seeing on... Coop's pin and actually Gordon's pin as well. It looked like an owl symbol with another triangle on top of it, or another uh, diamond on top of it. Uh, you mean and, like and what we saw in the Philip Jeffries hotel room later? A little bit, but not the same. It doesn't 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 okay. turn into a figure eight. Imagine the right. diamond with the wings with another diamond on top of it. Okay, still with the wings, not the wings moving off and forming another diamond. The wings only on the lower diamond, not on the top diamond. Right. That's right. Ah. Interesting. That that's that as far as I you know I, and I paused this many many times when I rewatched these two episodes and that's the best <laughs> that I could take out. Uh and sometimes there there appears to be a border and sometimes there doesn't appear to be the border but I think that may be the light in the particular shot because otherwise I'd just completely lose my mind. uh because in, in particularly when they're out by the electrical wires in in part 18 it seems to change like five times and I I was losing it. Uh anyway, um sometimes his hair bends back. Andy was getting a picnic basket ready. So uh, Mr. C does not pull his gun on him. And he, Andy offers to bring Mr. C uh, into the station to say hi to everybody. In the meantime, Nido is completely uh, freaking out. And Chad has is has now broken out of his cell from within the, the station. Uh, when, when Andy brings Mr. C into the station, uh, she's really happy to see Mr. C. Says that they're just talking about you. And and Jeff, I, you noted that Lucy is so friendly here that even Mr. C seems almost happy to meet her. He kind of smiles. There's a little bit of yeah. warmth when he says, he, it's he nice almost, to see you. He almost, smiled, he almost smiled at Andy in the parking lot, too. And I think this is sort of the closest to human warmth that we've actually seen from Mr. C anywhere in the whole season. So, yeah. But I just attributed that to Lucy. Yeah, and you know, the, the, those those flashes of sort of familiarity and, you know, almost affection and and the fact that that Mr. C is obsessed with finding coordinates. You know, I, I do think that that plays into the question of how different is Mr. C from Coop and especially how different is Mr. C from the yeah. version of Coop that we see in part 18, uh, where hey, he turns down yeah. coffee. There's, there's no resemblance right, right. to real. He's, Cooper he's clearly here. not original Coop. He turns down coffee, but I do think that he's on he's yeah. on a path that's very similar. He's looking for coordinates. He's looking for Judy. I mean, yeah, Cole. And, no, you're right. Cole has just told us at the beginning of this episode. It's all about a plan to find Judy hatched by him and Briggs and Cooper. And it's like Mr. C has been on the same path to find Judy, but using, you know, Bob methods and Bob uh, influenced, you know, evilness and, and doppelganger influenced uh, methods and evilness. But, you know, fundamentally there's more in common with Coop than we'd like to see. And then we see 
in part 18, uh, a version of Cooper who is, who is similar, who, who seems to have merged in some level with that, that kind of Coop who is obsessed with coordinates, right? You know, he, he wants to know the address, right. write down the address and in a flat affect, you know, not really acting like a, a proper FBI agent or the, the Cooper FBI agent that we've always known. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously jumping ahead there, but, uh, I, I can't. No, that's, that's, and is, isn't it like Harry who says to him, you're the only one who has the coordinates to take us where we're going on this? And like one of the earlier seasons, is that how he phrases it? I thought that was interesting. You know, I can't remember if that's exactly how he phrases it, but, um, you're right. And I think this, it's interesting because you mentioned it, Jared, and I hadn't thought about it because at, later on, even, you know, we're only going to see Doppelkooper for about three more minutes here, but, uh, in lots of Cooper's appearances from kind of the moment of the superimposed face, which we might get to in 2019. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, but from that moment on, I did start to see the same thing, this kind of bleeding over of, as you said, Mr. C into like what we think of as original recipe Cooper, but then also at moments, the Dougie identity manifesting yep. itself yep. Uh, at different times. But I think you're even in this moment, as I said, of, it's almost like a, a moment of warmth, almost like a, a regular Cooper in Doppel Cooper. I, you're right. It starts earlier than even I had identified it. And I, think see, I, kind I, of, I didn't read that as warmth at all. I, I, I saw that as, as sort of, I, I don't know. It, uh, I, I did not read it as, as a friendly smile at all. Well, so much depends on the music, right? As, as with so much of this, like you can watching it. Uh, muted with the subtitles as I do while we're doing this you can see him crack sort of a smile like he's kind of delighted at the performance of these actors again uh, but while I was watching it the first couple times the sound design really drives home that this is meant to be ominous and eerie you know so yeah no I mean I, I think for, uh, it's very it makes sense because we know how bad Mr. C is that any manifestation of warmth or affection we would immediately assume is fake not true not genuine right uh, right. But but I don't think Mr. C's capable of that kind of affectation or, or generally hasn't shown himself to be. He's a cool cucumber uh, and really has. Except around Lucy. And right. Andy. Ex- exactly. They're so, They're so cute and so pure. Right. I mean, Andy is the, the purest of hearts, uh, apparently, in terms of the, the person at the sheriff station who's supposed to go up into the White Lodge. If you really want to see Mr. C crack a smile, wait till he gets together and has a couple of beers with Wally. Then you'll see <laughs> a side of him you'd never imagine. But we at least know that Bad Coop can can fake his way through this, right? Because in The Missing Pieces, after he smashes his head into the mirror, he's able to convince Harry and Doc Hayward that he's real Coop. And they take him to the hospital, and um, and he's able to walk right out of there. And Doc Hayward says, yeah, he kind of looked at me funny, but that's the extent of it. I mean, nobody looks at him and says, "Hey, I think this guy is pure evil," and he just smashed his head into a uh, into a mirror and was laughing about it. And that seems strange. Maybe we ought to hold him uh, here in the hospital for a little bit longer. But no, they just let him walk right out. Yeah, but this is a show where people didn't notice Dougie's mental incapacity for like days at a time. So who knows? Yeah, but that's in Vegas. <laughs> I mean, Doc Hayward was kind of on top of things medically. Yeah. Now, Kyle, are you talking about the missing pieces, or you're talking about the conversation that uh, that that Frank Truman had with 
Well, I'm uh, talking about both. I mean, I, I moved okay. from one to the other, but you know, we we know from the missing pieces that Harry and Doc Hayward took him, went into the bathroom right after the end of the season two finale, and then took him to the hospital. And then we know from the conversation between Frank and Doc Hayward in Twin Peaks: The Return that he did see him near uh, intensive care that day, and you know, thought he kind of looked at him funny, but certainly didn't think it was anything severe enough for him to go over there and say, "Hey, what's going on here?" Right. Right. So anyway, Mr. C makes it to Sheriff Truman's office. Uh, he, he Interestingly, Andy grabs a chair and sort of situates a chair for Mr. C to sit down. And he offers him coffee, which, you know, Coop declines, which is definitely a really, really tough, uh, uh, tough thing because that's not something that real Cooper would ever do. Truman, he says, you know, Cooper. And then Cooper again, which, you know, reminded me of the message from... Major Briggs right. uh, provided, and then and then Mister C says, "In the flesh," uh, which you know, reminded me of a certain a certain veterinarian's uh, sign that said, "Aid to the beast incarnate." Finally, Frank gets a phone call, and the phone call is <laughs> relayed to him by Lucy, who says it's a really important call. After initially, Frank doesn't want to take it, and it turns out that it's 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 good coop. Uh, he's there and he's, he's on the road and, uh, you know, Frank kind of explains that he's the other Sheriff Truman's brother and gets off the phone and there's a, a standoff here. Uh, but Frank asks Coop if, what he's here for. He says, unfinished business. I'm sorry. That was after, that was after the phone call. I apologize. I got lost here. They pull gun. They, they, they both pull a gun on each other. Coop, Mr. C appears to fire, but. Lucy shoots him in the back and, and that's it. You know, that's, that's the end of this. In the meantime, while all this is happening, Chad has, has got a gun from the gun locker after he gets out of the prison. He sees Andy at the end of the hallway downstairs in the jail and he starts uh, moving at Andy. He's going to shoot Andy. He calls Andy a pussy as you know, we'd expect Chad to say. Uh, But of course we know everything's going to be fine because Freddie, is waiting with his green glove to punch the door of the cell, jail cell, uh, to knocks him out uh, and onto the ground uh, so that Andy can arrest him. In the meantime, his wife has uh, just uh, committed an act of homicide uh, and killing uh, Mr. C upstairs. Andy then says, we've got to get you all upstairs, but of course, all, all apparently does not include uh, our drunk mimic uh, oozing friend. Uh, they just leave him in the basement, I guess. Uh, and, you know, he, Truman is still on the phone with Coop, which is when this this drawdown happened. Uh, and he says, I think this one's dead, Agent Cooper. And, and the good Cooper says, stay away from the body. You know, don't touch it. Uh, and then, you know, gradually they all start coming into the Mr. Tr- Frank Truman's office. What I thought was interesting about the scene is that uh, consistent with completely inexplicable body placement after being shot. Uh, like we saw with the yellow man in blue velvet, somehow Lucy's shooting Mr. C in the back while he's sitting in a chair. Uh, and we have to assume that Andy kind of positioned that chair in advance, that this was part of his vision from the White Lodge so that Lucy would be in position to shoot him. Th- that somehow he, Mr. C ends up on his back, like four or five feet away at a completely inexplicable angle from the ch- chair. Did any of you guys notice that? There's no way to explain how Mr. C could end up on the floor where he did uh, after that shot. 
I mean, not that it really matters, but uh, you know, it's the same kind of dream logic that is consistent with David Lynch's work. He's got to lay in this certain way so that the woodsman can do their exactly. There's got to be enough space. He fell backwards in that way, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Hawk comes in and says, "That is Agent Cooper," and which is interesting because you know, throughout this whole scene, it 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 made it clear, perhaps that that what what Hawk and Truman really needed to know is that that there were two Coopers, uh, and that that they only knew this because of the papers that they found. Right. Uh, that Hawk found in the door, and you know, if they if they hadn't known that, they, this would have been a much more difficult scene for them because they wouldn't have understood the idea that there were two Coopers, but for the pages of Laura's journal. But Hawk seems really not to understand that when when uh, Hawk says, "What the hell?" and Truman says, "Agent Cooper said don't touch that body," and he says, "That is Agent Cooper," and Frank says, "No, it's not." And and Hawk really seems to be struggling with a concept that he's the one who actually sussed out and explained. Uh, but obviously, the hero of this scene is Lucy, and I just love the way we have the callback that in the season, you know, and of course this this part of it just feels like Mark Frost is all over it, and and in many ways, uh, the first half. Of part 17 is as Mark Frost heavy an episode we've had since the season one finale, which he both wrote and directed. Uh, and, and we have a callback to that season one finale. Andy is the one who fires the shot that saves Sheriff Truman's life, Harry Truman. And now season three finale, uh, Lucy fires the shot that saves Sheriff Frank Truman. So apparently just as only the odd-numbered World Wars start in Sarajevo, so too the, do the odd-numbered Twin Peaks seasons end with a member of the Brendan family saving uh, Sheriff Truman's life by shooting a bad guy. Yeah, that was great. I agree. So, uh, it's Woodsman time, and this is Ken's Vindication Corner. <laughs> uh, because, uh, again, Mr. C has been shot. Again, Woodsman appear again. Moonlight Sonata is being played, slowed down to like 25 times slower than it, and it's supposed uh, to be. Chopped and screwed, you uh, mean. So we hear, chopped and screwed, Midnight chop, Sonata. Chopped, chopped and screwed, I, I, yeah. And, uh, uh, and, and I love it. It's not, I love those, those weird tones that come out uh, from uh, when the woodsmen are doing their thing. Uh, and, you know, what, what we see is a, a black ball rise out from Mr. C's midsection uh, I thought I, st- you know, I was watching this at, at Ken's place. Uh, Ken's an excellent host. And if he ever invites you to your place, he'll make you really nice drinks, make you feel very comfortable, uh, Thanks, but Jack. also make you feel very, conf- but also make you feel very conflicted. If every single time you've watched this episode, it was entirely by yourself at night, like with a computer staring at it with no distractions from other human beings in the room. So yeah, that was, it was, I really enjoyed watching it with, with, with you, Ken. And it allowed us to, um, I, I held out some hope. Because initially it was just a black ball. We didn't see Bob's face, but no, there's Bob. It's Bob is is in the ball. Uh, it's it's amniotic Bob, uh, Bob and the cow, uh, like like we had seen in, in part eight, and it starts floating around the room. Um, you know, everyone is obviously really disturbed to see the woodsmen doing their thing, where they like smear blood on Mister C's face and all over his body. Uh, which is you know, a very weird way to resurrect somebody, but apparently that it works if you've got at least if you've got Bob inside of you. Uh, Bob initially comes at original Cooper, uh, knocks him to the ground, and then while this was going on, <laughs> yeah, go, go I was going to say we get the shot, <clears throat> we get the weird shot of Cooper arriving. Like I think the woodsmen start doing their ritual 
And then Cooper shows up, you know, with the Mitchum brothers and Candy and Mandy and Sandy and everyone. And I noticed that when they show up, it seems like whatever's going on with the woodsman, it seems to have dimmed the lights outside the sheriff station. Did you guys notice yeah. this or it was just me? It looked like the light had shifted from daylight to like this deep twilight. I called it eclipse light because where I saw the eclipse at 99% here in Georgia, the light almost looked this kind of weird, eerie uh, sense to it. So I thought that was really interesting because it looks like when Gordon shows up later, that effect has gone away after the woodsmen have gone away. But I, I like that sense that they were dimming all of reality. Yeah, and I really like the way yeah. the hands look over the chest as they're performing their rite or their ritual to extract the amniotic bob. The hands inner twine and interlace and they look like a, a shiny metallic rib cage over bad coop it's actually very much like an old nine inch nails video sort of an aesthetic so it seems like some of all that time hanging out with Reznor has uh, really stuck with with lynch over the years right mr cooper you know original coop has showed up the the bob orb flies at coop knocks him to the ground freddie stands up and says you know oi and, and Coop yells out, are you Freddy? He's like, that's right. And this is me destiny. And uh, and he, we proceed to see a boxing match uh, between uh, Bob, and, the Bob Orb and Freddy using his magic green glove, uh, which, you know, we lots of boxing that we've seen in this series, right? But we've got Battling Bud, uh, who who did right by, by Dougie. And, you know, ultimately was instrumental in, in keeping Coop safe. And then, of course, there's the boxing match that gets played over and over and over again in Sarah's house, Sarah Palmer's house, um, where the there's this weird electrical uh, glitch and the same like 20 seconds of an old time boxing match comes up. And I kept reminding of, you know, that phrase that was being used in that particular clip where it's like, it's a boxing match now. And, you know, I won. I, there's got to be a connection, right, between this scene and what Sarah slash Judy, perhaps, was seeing on her television uh, repeated over and over again. Uh, anyway, what, what, what happens is uh, he, gets, he gets Bob, he gets a couple hits on Bob, but before he does, Bob kind of pushes him to the ground and kind of bloodies him up, not as badly as the experiment model did. Uh, to to Sam and what was her name? Tracy. Sam Tracy. and Tracy in episode one, but it, there's a similar kind of action, right? Like there's this like shaky movement of the head, and the the other people, the the victim is being bloodied. Uh, but eventually, Freddie finds the strength to get his hand up again to punch him. He punches him, and then he gets him on the ground, and Bob appears to be kind of prone, and he punches him again and again and again, kind of pushes him down, like into hell. Right, he goes through the floor, and then fire erupts from the hole in the floor, and then he's back, and they they have to to fight some more, and then and then Bob he does say catch you with my death bag, so they didn't have to record anything new for Bob to say, uh, they could just use that from the original series, and finally the the Freddy lays down the final punch, and dissolves you know busts the the Bob orb into a bunch of tiny or you know small pieces of what look like coal or 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 metal or something and what i thought of immediately when i saw bob break up into this like hard coal like substance uh was of course time bandits where yeah 
ultimate evil, when it's finally destroyed, it, it, it breaks up into this concentrated pieces of evil that the Supreme Being says, you know, no, 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 don't touch that. <laughs> it, it's, 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 a, it's a big problem if anybody touches these little pieces of coal uh, of, ulti- uh, rem- of remaining ultimate evil. And the, the pieces of Bob after he was blown up looked exactly the same. I don't know if that was an homage or not. We certainly don't see any of those pieces of Bob, but it, that's what I thought of when that, that happened. And Freddie says, did I do it? And Coop said, you did it, Freddie. And, <laughs> and Freddie has a sigh of relief. Uh, so finally, Coop gets the owl ring, puts it on Bad Coop's figure, finger, and Bad Coop vanishes. Rodney Mitchum says, one for the grandkids. And Bradley nods. So at this point, let's, let's pause and talk about what's happened in this episode up to this point, And then... We're going to figure out, um, you know, whether or not this is going to be part one of 10 or 11 uh, part uh, <laughs> episodes discussing uh, parts 17 and 18. Uh, but it, it's worth it, I think, at this point to, to, to talk about uh, what we've seen so far in part 17. Who wants to go first? Uh, I'll probably have the shortest take, so I'll go first. Uh, what? Go for it. What are we doing? Why Why is this the resolution? This is very strange. I really liked watching it in the moment. This is this is like we were like Kyle was saying before about how this episode holds up worse in in a lot of ways on rewatch. Like we knew Freddie was going to come into play. In retrospect, we all should have seen the boxing light motif coming, as Jr. pointed out. We knew that the the Fab Fist Freddie power was going to be really really important, and it was sort of satisfying to see Bob get punched all the way to hell. I guess, but the only thing that it contributed besides a final battle with Bob was to put all these characters in the same room to watch. Like, it's really strange right. that the the ending was like something out of a Dragon Ball Z episode, I think somebody said on Twitter, right? Dragon Ball Z is directed by Lynch. That, like, you just punch the shit out of evil four times and you win after 17 hours of this and 25 years and two seasons of putting clues together and getting coordinates from FBI agents that have become kettle creatures and discovering the pages of, of Laura's secret diary. I mean, this is, this is the scene where I both celebrated in the moment and then almost immediately went back and thought, wait, but what? And why? And thought about Kyle's list in the in the group text of all the stuff that ultimately didn't matter leading up to this. It's a very weird capper to a show whose plot-driven pleasures are largely the plot-driven pl- pleasures of a murder mystery, where you're supposed to be piecing clues together, the show is trying to tell you. And then you don't, because Freddy's just here to punch the shit out of everything? It's it's odd. So that that's my short take on this scene. Yeah. Well, I would agree with, I mean, on, on some level, I don't think this season was about a murder mystery, but I mean, I, I, I would agree with you about a lot of the rest of that, that this whole sequence to me almost played like weird comedy, you know, and, and it also played to yeah. me like a video game, you know, like this sort of yeah. really surreal video game. It reminded me of like, you know, some games I played when I was a kid, often of like Japanese provenance that I just accepted at the time. And then looking back on their adult, it's some of the most surreal like things I've ever conceived of, you know, that I just accepted as a kid. But I mean, think about this one. It's like, okay, you have to get Doppel Cooper into the sheriff's station just the right time so that he can get shot by this character who's probably likely never shot a gun in anger before shot a gun at all. Right. Then you have to stay away from the body, not touch it. Um, a bunch of other characters show up. 
Then these demonic woodsmen performed this ritual. They removed this globule containing an evil spirit from the guy who got shot. Then this guy with a magic green glove has to kill the globule by punching it. All these other people from like the entire history of the game show up. You had to put the magic ring on the body of the guy who got shot after the globule is removed from him and sent to another dimension. Then his body disappears and is sent to another dimension because of the magic ring. And it, it just had this weird sense of like it moved really quickly and then almost purposefully. And I, I got this sense of like, you know, you're killing the big boss at the end of a stage, but then you think you've beat him. And then this other boss like shows up, you know, and it just, um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 I was surprised at how quickly all of this went down. And I think on some level, I almost felt like it was, you know, maybe satirizing our hope for a easy plot driven, you know, resolution. And I, I, I would love to see the script here and wonder, uh, like you said, a lot of you guys said that this does feel like Mark Frost. And, you know, from, I read like one of his novels, you know, after twin Pe- the list of seven or something. And I could see there's this kind of goofy wackiness about it in this, all these things kind of coming. I, I could see it being frost, but I also would love to, you know, have, uh, you know, see what Lynch like kind of thought of this and which aspects of this were Lynch, which were frost and Lynch was be like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll give you this ending and then I'll do this other thing. Is that cool? You know? And then I don't, I don't know. Uh, but uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's uh, Kyle. I think that's exactly right, Jeff. And I I'm, I'm in the same place with Ken on this. I thoroughly enjoyed it while watching it originally Going back and looking at it, I thought, you know, we, we didn't get any sort of coop on coop face off. In fact, there's no particular reason why Dale had to stop being Dougie. Dougie could have walked in there and put the ring on Doppel Cooper's finger while he was dead. I mean, that, that didn't require anything special. You know, the log lady told Hawk, there's fire where you were going. Well, where? Upstairs when, when you watch Freddy punch Bob down into hell and the flames shoot up because that's the only fire that, that Hawk has has run into in this and and it just it felt like the season two finale where lynch came in and junked a lot of the script and he front loaded all of the plot points so that he could have this languid pacing uh at the end uh and obviously with showtime he had a lot more room uh and and for as cool as the freddy moment is why do we need Freddy? Why, I mean, why Freddy specifically? Because what Freddy contributes is he's basically a good person and he has superhuman strength. And Nadine Hurley has both of those characteristics. And it easily could have been arranged for Nadine after she goes to Big Ed. She gives Big Ed his freedom. She goes to the roadhouse. Now she's free, too. She's hopefully going to pick up that cute Mike Nelson again. She sees Chuck accosting her nephew, and she goes over there with her superhuman strength and beats him up. And so we get Nadine and James into the jail cell. That's easy to do. It doesn't require any more plot contrivance than this did. And it's it's important in this scene because we're finally, for the first time, getting genuine, undeniable agency on the part of the female yeah. characters. You know, Frank's slow on the draw. Chad gets the drop on Andy. Hawk, Bobby, and Coop all arrive after it's all over. But Lucy's the one who saves the day and shoots down Doppel Coop. And then later, Nido sets the stage for Cooper to go back and rescue Laura. And in between those two events, Bob, the evil that men do, is defeated. The through line of this scene would have been a lot more consistent and it would have had a greater resonance with the original series if instead of having Freddie, we'd had Nadine and then you've got boom, 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 three, you know, three instances in one scene where Doppelkang, Doppel Cooper is killed, Bob is defeated, 
the salvation of Laura Palmer is set into motion by three female characters. And I think it was a missed opportunity to have to stick Freddie in there when we could have used that time for, you know, more scenes of sweeping at the roadhouse or something. <laughs> Kyle, I was, I was going to say that I think there's going to be a description in the final dossier of how the firemen met Freddie on metaphysical tinder in london okay wanted to throw him a bone the guy was struggling you know that's and right. that's that's how this kind of came yeah well i mean i was actually going to say that uh with regard to nadine I, I think that there has to be some if we want to talk within the logic of the show itself there's you're gonna have to need some sort of supernatural element or weapon to be able to hit bob right nadine's super strength may not be enough and I agree with you, Kyle, that that there would be there would be some nice symbolism if it were you know three established women who resulted in defeating Mister C and Bob and and setting into motion the salvation of Laura Palmer and that being accomplished by women. But you know, I think the character of of Freddie he is like a pilgrim. He he he's villain willingly volunteered for this. He's not he's a young man. He's not besmirched by a history of experience. Uh, that would complicate his sort of innocence other than having a few too many pints at the pub uh, versus Nadine, who's got a much more, you know, complex uh, and nuanced history that, that isn't at all entirely good. And, you know, but in the reality of this is that David Lynch had some sort of weird dream or vision that involved a green glove, guarding glove, punching Bob in the face. And that's why we're seeing it here. That's that. Sure. I mean, that that's ultimately that. That's why because David Lynch thought sure. it was it was cool. Maybe he and, he and saw, honestly, I would have got a Hulk, maybe, maybe his kid got like a Hulk smash, you know, fist glove uh, <laughs> for his birthday, and 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 Lynch thought that that was cool, and so he wanted to incorporate it in. So that, that's probably what, what happened. Yeah, I mean, it's it's more Fair likely, enough. and that I, I than, probably wouldn't have even than the idea that Lynch actually played a video game. I cannot imagine David Lynch with like a GameCube controller in his hands. Like that just that's an utterly absurd image. But I I love the Nadine point. I think the Nadine point is great. I I struggle with both of these episodes with my own fundamental critical principle of review or respond to the art that the artist made and not the art you wish the artist had made, right? And so my own yeah. my own feeling is like I I have to respond to this on its own terms, but this in in a way is the whole 18-hour work. And the whole 18-hour work, as Lynch would tell you, it's one thing, right? Sets up certain expectations and uh certain ideas about what it's going to be and then really seems to flout them here. Even more so maybe in this fan service episode than in episode 18 though. We will obviously get there. I mean, I love Jeff's video game analogy too. And you think about Jeff, if you were playing that video game and you were going through all these fetch quests or whatever and retrieving all this stuff, and it's like, okay, I finally figured out how to get the guy to pry open the door to retrieve the secret pages for Laura's diary. That's going to be really important. Like the walkthrough says, I have to get the secret pages to Laura's diary. And then I finally got the finger sandwiches from Candy, Mandy, and Sandy. And none of those matter. Well, okay, the finger sandwiches wouldn't have to matter, but you know. <laughs> 
the secret pages of Laura's diary seems like the most, the biggest indictment. That was the one thing on Kyle's list of stuff that didn't up, end up mattering that I was really bummed about, right? And so it's like you get you get through that level, you get you that accomplishment is done, that that thing is in your bag of holding, and then you finally get to the big boss battle, and you haven't used the pages for anything. And it turned out the only thing that mattered was this character that joined your party that had punching power. That was the only thing. Just as long as you get the punchy guy, you're gonna you're gonna beat the big boss. Everything you do up to that point is irrelevant. You could take the Mario warp pipe straight to Freddy in the boiler room and you'd be good. You know? Yeah. Well, and it I mean, all I, got introduced yeah. late. I mean, it all it all showed up toward the end. You know, Freddy wound up mattering. The Richard and Linda thing didn't show up until part 18. I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's not even what you've got in your bag of holding. It's uh, everything is resolved by the mystery Mouskatool in the last hour and a half. Yeah. And I, and I also, you know, was surprised at how easily Doppelcooper and Bob, you know, who had been, we'd seen as these gigantic kind of forces of evil in the same way that Wyndham Earl just is kind of taken care of in like 10 seconds by Bob in right. the last episode of season two. And then we'd never heard from him again. He didn't right. show up in fire walk with me. He didn't show up um, in this season at all, as far as I can tell. Right. Um, and the, and it almost does seem like they're kind of small potatoes. And then just before this, you know, we got Judy kind of, introduced and all our kind of you know did it, judy is, is garland briggs or nido i know I, I for me i think judy is this other kind of force but it seems like and also i got a sense in this sequence that yeah like uh you guys want the audience wants this kind of happy ending or this kind of neat resolution well here it is but we're not done with a show right. we're gonna go somewhere else entirely and i for me it's like Doppel Cooper and Bob seem like small potatoes evil compared to Judy. Uh, and then, you know, I'm sure we have all have theories compared to that, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what's different about David Lynch and I can't remember who said this, but somebody said this is that unlike so many conventional TV writers or, or movie makers make, he doesn't tell you what he's going to say, say it and then tell you what he just sold, told he's 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 not interested in setting up explanations he's always bringing something new and here he's kind of inverted that because he's told us now at the beginning of part 17 that this is really all about Judy and my that's my kind of view of this confrontation with Bob is that it's a sideshow um you know right. yeah he's sideshow exactly it's a it's a sideshow bob situation <laughs> That that the White Hot Lodge has got clearly in hand and almost with a sense of humor has set it up so that Freddie will be here to humiliate Bob in a pretty, pretty easy fashion. You know, I, I guess the difference is, you know, Bob is or was posited to be back in a conversation that appeared to have been forced by ABC seemed to force a conversation about what was Bob after uh, – Leland was revealed and then passed to the next realm uh, between Cooper and Agent Briggs and or Major Briggs and Albert about the nature of Bob. And, you know, they said maybe Bob is the evil that men do. Uh, and then there's a question about the cause and how, well, what do we need to know about the cause? And then is and, and Cooper says something to the effect of, well, if there's a cause, then we can stop it. Right. And, you know, it seems to me Bob is the evil that men do. Uh, but Judy is the evil itself. And yeah. and Judy is the long game uh, that's been going on throughout this whole series, throughout these 17 hours of television, uh, and arguably long before. And so, 
yeah, I mean, I, I kind of think that's what what's going on here is is that sort of trick that he's he's bringing the viewer into the idea that everything's kind of being resolved here, but in fact, there's this much bigger fight um, and much more painful fight that involves much more sacrifice than than this this yeah. video game sequence in the in the sheriff station. Um, right. You know, and, and at this point, so this is what I'm thinking. Uh, this has been a really good discussion. There's obviously a lot more to discuss about. Um, part seventeen and part eighteen. Wait, wait, Jared. Let me just respond to your last point real quick, um, so we can put a put a bow on it. Um, so that's that's really good, and I I like the idea that the White Lodge is fundamentally in control here because so much of what's going to happen in eighteen and the way I've been thinking about eighteen is that it's about like determinism, that it's about the inability to really change things that the great frustration the absolute existential horror is that things are going to be awful and garm and bosey and pain and suffering are going to be there no matter what even if you go all the way back in time and you know cause a uh prevent a specific murder from happening the pain and the misery and the sorrow and the horror are all going to be there so i like the notion that on the other side of things there's a countervailing positive force that is going to handle this even if you don't put all of the items from your fetch quests together properly uh, to save the day at the end or put the mystery together that, you know, you have to just sort of like let go and let God at a certain point. Like that's, that's a nice positive side counterpoint to that uh, reading of episode 18. So I like that you put that into the analysis. That's cool. Yeah. Well, thanks. Um, all right. Well, everybody, I think this has been a really good discussion we are not done by any means. Uh, this is the first of, hopefully two parts discussing episode or part 17 episode 17 of wrapped in plastic. Uh, things are about to get really weird. Yeah. Things are about wrapped to, things are about to get really, really weird. And so, uh, I think it makes sense to stop now and w- you can, uh, go on with your lives and then listen to part two. Uh, once we get a chance to continue to collect our thoughts and record it, uh, thanks for listening and we will be back soon. Bye-bye.